Encore episode. The unfortunate news about HRRP with insight into how to fix it. Today, I speak with Rishi Wadhira, MDMPP. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. HRRP stands for Hospital Readmission Reductions Program, by the way. I wanted to encore this episode with Dr. Rishi Wadhira because it's a great representation of a common root cause reason why quality metrics sometimes don't end well in real life. This root cause, otherwise known as Goodhart's Law, and we dig into Goodhart's Law later on today. But the actual and ultimate impact of HRRP is also a pretty good representation of the consequences. What happens when you create a blunt force policy that assumes hospitals with very different circumstances are the same? Before we kick into the episode, I asked Dr. Wadhira, my guest today, as aforementioned, if there'd been any updates regarding HRRP since this show originally aired last year. And he told me that two key pieces have come out this past month in JAMA journals calling out CMS to move on from slash retire this policy. Thanks so much to Dr. Steve Schutzer and also Bondock66 for your really nice reviews this past month. So appreciated. Thank you so much. And here is your encore. Today's guest is Rishi Wadhira, MD, MPP. Dr. Wadhira authored a retrospective analysis in the BMJ about the HRRP, which we will talk about today. Dr. Wadhira is a cardiologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He also has a master's in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and also a master's in public health from the University of Cambridge. All these links are in the show notes, by the way. But here's the larger epiphany that pertains to all value-based care and all quality metrics, which Dr. Wadhira brings up today and which my nerd heart could not love more. Goodhart's Law. This law is the root of so very many problems. Goodhart's law is this, which I learned from Dr. Wadhira. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. In other words, when we set a goal, people will try to take a shortcut to the goal, regardless of the consequences. And sometimes the consequences, paradoxically, are to do worse at the goal. Maybe because bean counters and admins and maybe even goal-oriented clinicians themselves will go right to the end goal, inadvertently skipping a whole bunch of, it turns out, rate-critical steps. For example, teaching to the test may not actually lead to students who deeply understand a subject. And anyone trying to achieve value-based care success, improve quality, form collaborations, make sales, might want to remember that old proverb. Sometimes the shortest way home is the long way around. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Rishi Wadhira, MD, MPP. Thank you so much for coming on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks so much for having me, Stacey. The HRRP, the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program. What is the HRRP? What was it intended to do? So back in the early 2000s, nearly one in five Medicare patients were readmitted to a hospital within 30 days of discharge at an estimated cost of billions of dollars annually. Researchers at the time felt 
that a good chunk of these readmissions were preventable. And policymakers took notice and enacted the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program, or the HRP, as part of the Affordable Care Act in 2010. And in 2012, began imposing penalties on hospitals with higher than expected 30-day readmission rates for three conditions, heart failure, myocardial infarction or heart attack, and pneumonia. The overarching aim of this program was really just to push hospitals to improve discharge planning when a patient was in the hospital, improve transitional care from hospital to home or hospital to rehabilitation facility, and then post-discharge care during that vulnerable period after a hospitalization, all to reduce the likelihood that a patient would need to come back to the hospital within 30 days of discharge. And so from CMS's perspective, this program was low-hanging fruit in terms of a way to reduce healthcare spending, but it was also a way to incentivize improvements in the quality of care that patients receive during a hospitalization. And I'll just note that since the program initially focused on these three conditions, but it's since expanded to focus on other conditions too, including chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder or COPD, cabbage surgery, a type of heart surgery, as well as other conditions. Why was CMS thinking some of these readmissions were preventable? Early empirical work basically suggested that at least a proportion of readmissions were preventable. And they were preventable because they occurred due to a misstep in terms of discharge planning, or they occurred because patients didn't have appropriate outpatient follow-up after discharge. So they looked into this and they saw that there was certain patients that were being discharged with inadequate post-discharge planning, say. And because of that, the intent was, let's stop this. It's hugely expensive. Exactly. The spirit of the hospital readmissions reduction program was to incentivize hospitals to improve those things that I just pointed out. Discharge planning, transitions of care, and post-discharge follow-up and care. And the initial findings were quite positive, correct? Yeah. Early data that came out a few years after the HRP had been implemented suggested that it was a huge success. Readmissions for the three conditions that were the initial focus of the program seemed to decline from about 21.5% to 18% nationally. And so there was a lot of enthusiasm for this program. It was a program that seemed to be successful at improving quality and reducing costs at the same time. Readmissions after those three initial conditions declined 3% from 21% to 18 And okay, so now we're, what, 9, 10 years later, are we still thinking the same thing? So over the last couple of years, a lot of research has come out about this program that have shown that the reduction in readmissions that had been credited to the HRP was probably overstated. Much of the national decline in readmissions was actually driven by coding and statistical artifact. Now, when you account for changes in coding intensity for comorbidities at hospitals and then some statistical nuances, the actual decline in readmissions nationally that could be credited to the HRP was more along the lines of 0.3 to 0.9%. That's sort of what the best estimates suggest. And research by our group and others has shown that even that small decline in readmissions that has been attributed to the HRP may not reflect widespread improvements in quality of care 
because the rate at which patients are coming back to the hospital within 30 days has actually increased under the program. Wait, so the rate at which patients are coming back has increased at the same time that readmissions have decreased? Yeah, so it it, it seems (laughs) paradoxical, right? This is a really important point. The 30-day readmission measure, it's an incomplete measure. The readmission measure only captures one type a visit that can occur to the hospital within 30 days. What it doesn't capture are patients who come back after discharge and are seen in an ER and then sent home. It also doesn't capture patients who come back to a hospital and are placed in observation status or in observation units. And so when you take all of those types of visits that can occur within 30 days of discharge and put them together, what we and others have found is that 30-day total hospital revisits have been increasing for these three conditions since the program was implemented. And is this nationwide? Obviously, there's hospitals that serve wildly different patient populations across the country. We don't know is the short answer. What we know is on a national level, as we've seen this small reduction in readmissions, there's been a concomitant increase in the rate at which patients come back to an ER and are sent home and the rate at which patients come back to a hospital and are put in observation status. Now, you know, whenever a policy like the HRP is rolled out by the federal government, it's sort of a blunt tool. And that blunt tool can elicit all sorts of responses from hospitals, healthcare systems, and clinicians. So on one hand, I'm sure that well-resourced, and there's empirical work work to support this, well-resourced healthcare systems probably spent a lot of their effort trying to improve discharge planning, care transitions, and post-discharge care, but perhaps less well-resourced hospitals that don't have the sort of capital available to really invest in meaningful quality improvement, you know, it's possible that they've simply intensified their efforts to put patients that come back to the hospital in observation status or just treat them in an ER for 24 hours and send them home because the readmission measure is blind to those types of post-discharge visits. And it it helps hospitals keep their readmission rates lower, but it's an artifact. It's not that patients are coming back to the hospital less due to improvements in quality of care during that initial hospital stay. It's simply that we're changing the status of their revisit so that it doesn't get counted against the hospital as a readmission. Yeah, so it seems like a a lovely way to game the system. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how you can state that anything but pretty Bluntly, I don't think this is something that patients haven't noticed. You know, like you can't go too far and not find somebody who's complaining about how they were wheeled into a hallway or an observation area only to discover that like their sniff stay wasn't covered or something because it can only be covered after an admission and they weren't technically admitted even though they sat in the hospital for three days or something. So this is one of those open secrets based on your research, was that the conclusion or do do hospitals think that they're doing this very slickly and no one's noticing? No, I think patients are noticing. In fact, when I, I'm seeing a patient with a cardiovascular condition in the emergency room, the first thing some patients will ask me is, I don't want to be put in observation status. And the reason patients say that, understandably, is because They've been stuck with high out-of-pocket bills because of this weird technicality. There's a certain amount of expenses that Medicare will cover if you are in observation status versus inpatient status. And so I think patients, especially 
patients who have chronic conditions and are hospitalized a lot are smart and they know what's going on and they express concern about being put in observation status versus a regular inpatient admission. The thing that remains curious to me, I could understand why you would have a neutral impact, but it seems sort of curious that revisits are actually increasing, which would imply some sort of actual decrease in the three quality measures that this thing was supposed to improve. Do you have any insight into what's going on there? It's really tough to know. Perhaps if we take patient A, they get discharged from the hospital. Seven days later, they're just really not feeling good. And understandably, they need to come back to the hospital. They come back to an ER. And the way that CMS has created this incentive structure right now, there is an incentive for hospitals and healthcare systems to not readmit that patient. And so perhaps the clinicians who are doing the best they can within the constraints of the system do everything they can to keep the patient out of the hospital, give them the medications they need in the ER and send them home. But what happens if a patient that requires inpatient level care isn't getting it, perhaps they come back to the hospital three days later and the same thing happens and they get sent home and then they come back again. You can see how if a patient that initially came back to the hospital and needed inpatient level care gets sent home from the ER, that they may, all that may happen is that they just keep coming back to the hospital within that 30 day period more and more. So I suspect some of that is going on where we're trying our best to keep patients out of the hospital, now, not only because of this program, but because most patients don't want to be in the hospital. But what's happening is we're just increasing the number of times they need to come back to the ER within that 30-day period because they're not getting the intensity of care they require during that first revisit. So it could be the same individual as coming back three times. And therefore, exactly. that's contributing to the aggregate number of revisits. Exactly. And I'll just say the weird thing about the HRP is that when it evaluates hospitals' 30-day readmission rates, it's a yes-no phenomenon. It's did this patient get readmitted within 30 days? Yes, no. The program actually doesn't count how many times they got readmitted within 30 days. And so our studies and other folks' studies have counted that because that matters. If a patient is getting readmitted three times within 30 days or is coming to an ER, then an observation unit, then eventually is readmitted all on three separate visits. We need to account for that. You had mentioned this before, that there's sort of a difference between well-resourced hospitals, in, in air quotes, and ones that are less so. Can you get into that a little bit? What exactly did you mean by that? Yes. So what we have to remember is that when CMS looks at hospitals' readmission rates, they fairly recognize that it's not fair to compare readmission rates at Hospital A that has a really clinically sick population of patients to Hospital B that has maybe just generally a healthier population of patients. And so what CMS does is it risk adjusts for those differences in patients, hospitals, patient populations, level of sickness. And that is what we should be doing. You know, otherwise you end up with a program that just disproportionately penalizes hospitals that care for clinically and socially sicker patient populations, which the HRP does still do to some extent, and we can talk about that. But what I'll say is that when hospitals and health systems know having a patient population that has a higher level of sickness will make their readmission rates look lower after risk adjustment, there's this incentive to code more aggressively. When a patient comes in, 
there's an, an incentive to document how many other conditions they have. And there's been some concern that they may be just really documenting everything possible under the sun that that patient has because they know that if their patient population looks sicker to CMS, their risk-adjusted performance on quality measures, like the readmission measure, will look better. And as it turns out, we know that healthcare systems that are well-resourced, that have a lot of money, they can go out and hire coders whose job it is to make sure comorbidities or comorbid conditions are documented as much as possible for patient populations. Who can't do that? Well, under-resourced safety net hospitals that operate on very thin financial margins. So you're going to have well-resourced hospitals that maybe are in fancy areas with lots of commercial insurance, let's just say, who have the opportunity to hire coders who can make the readmission numbers look really good. Whereas you have the safety net hospitals serving lots of vulnerable populations that have income statements that don't look quite as good, that just don't have the money to hire the coders. So despite the fact that they are seeing actually patients who have the all of the risk factors that may be indicative of a, you know, a readmission that's going to happen regardless of the care received or the quality of care received, they don't have the coders, therefore they look worse despite the fact that they're actually caring for patient populations that are at higher risk. Yeah, and I'll just add that there's nothing wrong with hiring coders, but it just becomes problematic when you're trying to compare those hospitals to other hospitals that don't have those same resources because now your comparisons aren't equitable. What CMS is actually measuring with the readmission measure to some extent is hospitals' ability to code. And that's obviously not what the program intended to do. But there's also financial implications here. So if you've got the wealthy hospitals who are now getting the financial incentives, which we actually didn't talk about, that are available for the HRP, and then the safety net hospitals who have financial situation that really could use the cash aren't getting it, it would seem that there'd be sort of a downward spiral that also could be set into motion. Exactly. And th that this point that you raise is so important. The HRP has penalized hospitals nearly $4 billion to date since the program began implementing penalties back in 2012. And what we know, what many, many studies have shown, this program has been incredibly regressive. It has disproportionately penalized safety net hospitals who tend to care for more medically complex and socially vulnerable patient populations. And we as clinicians know social determinants like poverty, housing instability, and neighborhood disadvantage, along with many other social risk factors, have an Im immense influence on a patient's risk of readmission. And there's a lot of good literature that's come out over the last 10 years that's shown this over and over again. Poverty, neighborhood disadvantage, housing instability, these factors are out of hospitals' control. They have nothing to do with the quality of care a hospital is providing. And so for many years, the HRP has not accounted for these social risk factors, as well as other medical risk factors like cognitive impairment and disability that we know influence readmission risk. As a result, hospitals that care for medically and socially complex patient populations have been disproportionately penalized by the program. And it really begs a more global question. Does it make sense to take resources away 
from already under-resourced hospitals that are caring for our most vulnerable patient populations. I can only speak for myself. I would say absolutely not. Yeah, it does seem to have some inherent problem. Yes. <laughs> Clearly, we're looking at a role that has not achieved its desired effect. Its desired effect was to improve post-discharge care, transitions of care, and the discharge planning. Correct. So the intent here was is to improve the quality of those three things. If we're thinking about this from a policy perspective... What is your Monday morning quarterback, hindsight being 2020, evaluation? What was it about how the the policy was crafted that may have contributed to its unintended consequences? First, we should acknowledge that there are healthcare systems that have done the hard work and improved discharge planning and care transitions and post-discharge care in response to this program. And that, that's a really good thing. We want that. The issue with this program is first that the readmission measure by in and of itself, as we've talked about, is a flawed measure. It's not a complete measure. Set aside concerns about risk adjustment. The measure itself doesn't capture everything it should, which creates all sorts of issues when comparing hospital performance. So the first lesson here is pick the right measure. And you can argue, even if the readmission measure included all those other types of visits, you could argue whether a readmission actually captures quality adequately, because we've spoken about how readmissions reflect many other things, your socioeconomic circumstances, your, your social circumstances, the neighborhood that you, that you live in. My other Monday morning quarterback comment, which I think is much easier to make in hindsight, obviously, there's a major issue with the conceptual vision of this program. We need to ask ourselves whether tying reimbursement or payment to quality measures and more broadly penalizing hospitals is the right way to motivate improvements in the quality and delivery of care. Because what the HRP has taught us, if anything, is that blunt policies like this that are rolled out nationally probably elicit mixed behavioral responses that vary across clinicians, across hospitals, and across healthcare systems. The other broad lesson I was going to just reiterate is that it just makes no sense to take resources away from resource-poor hospitals. Another approach might be to say, from CMS's perspective, hey, let's identify the hospitals that perform poorly every year, and let's figure out ways, whether it be through financial support or in-kind support, to help them improve the quality of care they deliver. I definitely want to circle back to that. But a point that I want to make is I interviewed Rebecca Etz from the Larry Green Center. They had come up with a way to measure PCP performance. One of the things that she found that I think is similar to what you're saying is that having biometric measures actually wasn't great. (laughs) Evaluating a PCP on what is the A1C of your patient population actually produced the opposite of the intended effect, where people were trying to shortcut good care, in effect, in order to get to A1C scores. And what they found was actually a better metric was questions about the trust and relationship between the patient and the physician. And ultimately, if that became the quality measure, A1C scores declined more than (laughs) if you made A1C scores the quality measure, which I thought was fascinating. That makes total sense. I mean, it's Goodhart's law. 
once a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure for all of the reasons you just laid out. It's that all of a sudden disproportionate attention is being paid to a specific measure and how to perform well on it. And it can elicit unintended behaviors and consequences. I think globally, the way to motivate improvements in quality of care is not by using a carrot and stick approach, a penalty and reward approach, which sort of erodes that sense of clinician-patient relationship and everything that makes delivering healthcare really special. I think the best way to elicit improvements in quality from clinicians and healthcare systems is to tap into that sense of professionalism that motivated many clinicians and healthcare providers to go into medicine in the first place. It's not to erode that sense of altruism and professionalism by saying, hey, here's some money if you do well. Hey, we're going to take away money if you do poorly. So Goodhart's Law, any observed statistical regularity will tend to collapse once pressure is placed upon it for control purposes. So exactly. There we go. Thank you, Wikipedia. So you said a couple of really interesting things. You said, first of all, there is some broad lessons to CMS taking away from this. One of them is, should we really be penalizing hospitals that are obviously struggling? That was number one. But then also the idea of this, can we have some sort of broad stroke national programs when we're dealing with hospitals struggling with all kinds of different things. I mean, you know, maybe one of them has a problem with infection control and another one has a problem with readmitting cabbage patients. Like, it would seem the second that we start to paint with a really broad brush is the second that we start to create the opportunity to game the system for some, which winds up in a big game of whack-a-mole. Like, that's where I, I just keep seeing us wind up. I totally agree. I think it's just a consequence of CMS's approach to improving quality of care has really anchored on quality measures and tying quality measurement to payment. And what we've learned after a decade, not just from the hospital readmissions reduction program, also from the value-based purchasing program, the hospital acquired condition reduction program, is that these types of programs haven't worked. They have not worked. Best, they have elicited mixed responses from healthcare systems, some good, some bad. It's time for us to rethink what our approach to quality improvement should be and probably move away from this carrot and stick approach. I will also add that one thing that is probably not discussed enough in terms of these payment programs is that there are, are a lot of them and they're always changing. So many of these programs from year to year to year change the measures they focus on and how much they're weighted. And that makes it very, very challenging for healthcare systems to keep up. If you think about the outpatient version of pay for performance, which is what HR, the HRP is, it's a pay for performance program. It's the merit incentive based payment system or MIPS. And what we're finding Clinicians and healthcare systems are just overwhelmed by the number of measures they have to deal with, reporting these measures, keeping track of how to do well in these programs. What ends up happening is healthcare systems that are able to will hire consulting firms who will then tell them how to do well in these programs. And then healthcare systems will hire coders and other admin type folks to help them do well in these programs. And 
What we're not measuring is the unintended financial costs to the entire healthcare system of these types of programs, in addition to the administrative burden and burnout that they impose on clinicians. Kind of what we were talking about before. You're like, okay, so we're going to penalize readmission. So someone scratches their head and comes up with, well, we'll just keep everyone in observation. And then, you know, CMS gets wise to that and says, okay, no observation. And then some the hospital comes up with, or some consultant comes up with, okay, well, we'll have something that's not called observation, which is CMS playing whack-a-mole. I'll just say, I'll give you two concrete examples about MIPS, pay-for-performance program that rewards and penalizes providers based on quality measurement. Only 40% of measures that are used in that program have been deemed to be valid measures of performance by national societies. And that was in a study that was done a few years ago. And another study by Larry Casalino and colleagues found that U.S. physician practices were spending more than $15 billion a year to report quality measures. Imagine being an independent physician who runs your own practice and having to figure out and understand these programs, then build up the infrastructure to collect information on quality measures and report it to these programs. And then two years later, the program's changed or they've gotten rid of it. I think there's an an incredible administrative and probably emotional and financial toll that these programs, just because of how many there are and how many measures there are, have had on clinicians and healthcare systems. So I think what you're saying, just to kind of put it in some context, you're not saying let's not experiment and try to do better, which is the point that you were making at the top of this conversation. The point is, let's be a little bit more rigorous in how we're doing that such that we're not like just throwing things against a wall and expecting busy clinicians trying to do the right thing to reconcile all the bits. Exactly. I mean, we've written a lot about this in the New England Journal and JAMA. I think policymakers have an obligation to rigorously test the impact of these types of policies before they roll them out nationally. The situation we're in now is we have so many programs that have been rolled out in different times that it's all, not only is it overwhelming, I think, for clinicians and healthcare systems, but it makes it very difficult to tease out from a research standpoint what the true effects of those programs are so that policymakers can then say, oh, program X worked, let's expand it more, or program Y didn't work, let's sunset it. I will also say there is this reluctance, I think, probably from CMS's standpoint, because there are good people who work at CMS who are very smart, and they spend a lot of their time developing and getting, seeing these programs to implementation. They probably get emotionally invested in them too. And so we do need to be open to adjusting and fixing programs as we discover what does work and what doesn't work. Like You just brought up a great example. You said, oh, you know, it's a game of whack-a-mole hospitals are using observation status more in the HRP. So maybe that should be included in the readmission measure. Well, it's nine years later and CMS still hasn't done that. So there is something to be said for test programs on a smaller scale before you roll them out nationally. Don't throw the kitchen sink at healthcare providers and healthcare systems because it makes it very difficult to evaluate those programs. And then be open to adjusting and tailoring programs as you learn more about their those effects. And more importantly, be open to getting rid of programs that don't work. You said something that could be construed as contradictory. In the middle of the conversation, you had mentioned something about local programs, that it's really hard to scale something nationally because there's such a mixture of different patient populations, areas of the country, different communities. 
that it is very difficult to do something at a national level when the right idea might be go to a local hospital, figure out why that local institution is not delivering care that might be pretty unique to that individual entity and then work with them. But relative to what we just talked about, there was the idea that then you scale. So how do those two threads fit together? You know, can you scale nationally or is it this kind of like do healthcare locally but nationally somehow? I think fundamentally healthcare systems have the best understanding where they're struggling in terms of quality and what they're doing really well in terms of quality. So you might argue that a federal program that empowers local health systems on a local level to figure out what they're doing well and poorly and then fix them might be the optimal federal program. What that looks like, I'm not sure. I think we're not going to move away from CMS's desire on a national scale to hold clinicians and healthcare systems accountable for the quality of care they deliver. What CMS can do is, and they've done this, I I should give them credit, they've done this for hip replacement surgery. They had a cardiac version of the bundled payments program that they rolled out in a randomized way so that they could really rigorously test the effects of bundled payment programs, for example, on quality of care, spending, and outcomes. So I agree with you. There's this tension between local autonomy in terms of figuring out quality improvement and what the federal government wants to do. And I do think there's an in-between where CMS can do more of these hey, we're going to roll out this program in a randomized fashion across these geographic areas and try to understand what the effects of these programs are, both overall and amongst specific subgroups of healthcare systems before making a decision about what we do nationally. There will always be this tension, however, between like how much local autonomy should we give healthcare systems versus how much federal oversight there should be. If anyone is interested in learning more about your work, is there any particular place that you would direct them? I would say you can Google my name and usually there's a Harvard Catalyst profile that pops up that provides an overview of some of my and our team's empirical work. You can also check out our group's website by just Googling the Richard A. and Susan F. Smith Center for Outcomes Research, which is at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Dr. Rishi Wadhira, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, Stacey and team. I wanted to say thank you for the high quality content, thoughtful analysis, and an accessible form. I found Relentless Health Value podcast to add a lot of understanding for me when I'm often swimming in the dark. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much. Did you know on the podcast website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you can leave a voicemail message.